Amen. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the word. I'll be reading this morning from James chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 21 and read to the end of the chapter. These are the words of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man, observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. From the world. These are the words of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to worship you here this morning. Father, we pray that you would let your word have its way with us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask for this blessing upon us now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. As we look at this next section in James, before diving into this text in particular, if you have your Bibles open... Turn back a few pages to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4.12 tells us this. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The author of Hebrews here tells us that God's word is sharper than a double-edged sword. A double-edged sword that does what? It's used for cutting open, uh, flaying open uh, a, a, some, some sort of a, uh, a meat, really, in a sense. Okay? This is reminiscent of the sacrificial knife that the Levites would use when they were preparing their sacrifices. They would use a very sharp double-edged knife and would use it to cut up the sacrifice, to cut up the sacrificial animal so they could then lay it on the altar in a very particular order and then it would be offered up to God. This is what Hebrews tells us the word of God is like. It's like that knife. It's very sharp and it's sharp and its purpose is to cut down and discern between the division of soul and spirit. What's, what's the division between soul and spirit? I, I have a hard time understanding what that is. But God's word is so keen, the edge is so keen, that it can cut that division. It can divide bone from marrow. This is what God's word does. By means of his word, God cuts open his people in order to arrange them and set them straight. Arrange your heart so that then you might live as a living sacrifice for him. Paul tells us in Romans 12 that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. In every circumstance that we find ourselves in, that's our altar. We're to be laid out in those circumstances that God gives to us. That's our altar where we are then offered up to God. And it's God's word that prepares us for that, that sets us up for that, that opens us up and arranges us so that we can be that living sacrifice. 
In this passage in James that we just read, James uses very different imagery here, different metaphors. But the theme of the purpose and the power of God's word is the same. Christians have, uh, let, let's look at this text directly. Verse 21, which was part of our sermon text from last week, but I've included it here for context. Christians have been given the implanted word, is what James calls it in verse 21, the implanted word. It's been given to us, it's been placed in us, but in order to be received rightly, this next section James teaches us, this seed that has been planted needs to be cultivated. It needs to bear fruit. James goes on uh, to, to talk about how all Christians are tempted to merely be hearers of the word. It is tempting to hear the word when you are reading it or when you're hearing it preached, to hear the word and then to deceive yourself. And the deception is that you think that it is merely enough to hear the word. That it is enough to hear the word, to take it in, to read the word. All good, but insufficient in and of itself. Uh, Jesus teaches us the same sort of thing. You, you, uh, kids, you know this story, this parable. This, uh, you probably have a song that you've memorized about this. Jesus talks about the man who built his house on a rock. And the floods came and the rains came and the house did what? It stood firm, right? Because it was built on the rock. And then the other man, he built his house on the sand. And when the floods came and the, and the rains came, what happened to the house? It came crashing down. And Jesus uses this parable and he's describing the difference between two people. The wise man who builds his house on the rock is the man who hears the words of Jesus and then goes and does them. The man who hears the words of Jesus and then stops there and doesn't go and do the words that Jesus has given him, he is the man who has built his house on the sand. This has always been a temptation for God's people to hear the words and not to do them. James says that this is like a man, is a wonderful image, wonderful analogy that James gives us. It's like a man who examines himself in a mirror and then walks away, immediately forgetting what he saw, and, and therefore doing nothing about it. He goes and he sees himself in the mirror, takes note of it, walks away, and immediately forgets. Forgets all that he saw in the mirror, what kind of man he was. That's verses 23 and 24. However, verse 25, the one who looks in what James calls the perfect law of liberty, I think this is another uh, another term that he uses for the word of God. But here he calls it, and we'll talk about why. He calls it the perfect law of liberty. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and then does what it says. This one is blessed in his obedience. Verse 25. And then to end this section, verses 26 and 27, James gives three tests for true religion. Three tests for what it means to be truly religious in a God-honoring way. These tests are to bridle the tongue, bridling the tongue, caring for widows and orphans in their trouble, and not being stained by the world. This is verses 26 and 27. So I'd like to spend some time unpacking these things, unpacking the metaphor of looking into a mirror, um, and then talking about why does James turn and, turn and use the phrase, the perfect law of liberty, um, when he's talking about the word. And then finally, we'll talk about these three tests of true religion. 
James tells his readers that simply to hear the word and not to act on it, again, is like a man that forgets his own face after looking in a mirror. When you stop and think about this, this is hilarious. This is really funny. It's the kind of thing that if you watched in, um, you know, the Three Stooges, you'd be laughing about it. If it was something that you watched, um, uh, parents, if this is the kind of thing that you watched your children do, um, it would, well, hopefully it would make you laugh. Might, might cause some distress at first, right? They wake up in the morning, you go and you look in the mirror and you see all the slobber that's kind of caked on and they see it and then they turn and they forget that it was there. I, I told you to go check your face in the mirror. I did. Well, then there's something you have to do after that. You don't just look in the mirror and see that it's there. There's something that it calls you to do, right? Imagine somebody who examines his, himself in a mirror and sees that green leftover in his teeth and then turns away and does nothing about it. And we all see it. And, and we all kind of cringe about it. Didn't you look in the mirror this morning? Oh, yeah, that's right. But he forgets about it. Or somebody who you know, sees that alien form that's dangling out of the nose and then walks away and forgets about it. It's ridiculous to us, right? It's, it's funny. But James says that this is what we are like when we hear the word, when we hear it preached to us, when we read it ourselves, and then don't act on it. You're, you're like that you're like that immature person who doesn't remember what he saw in the mirror. But it's more than this. James says that to hear the word and forget what it reveals, is, it's not just this sort of passive forgetfulness. What does James call it? Look again at verse 22. He says that if you are hearers only, you are deceiving yourself. It's not this mere passive forgetfulness, oops, I forgot. No, there's... There's willful deception that's going on. You're deceiving yourself. James argues that it is easy to come, uh, uh, that, that we deceive ourselves, and we do this in a number of different ways. Um, remember that hearing the word for James, um, when James is writing, the New Testament has not been all compiled. Right? The New Testament that, that you have has not all been put together yet. Much of it exists or may exist at this time in different writings, but it's not all been compiled. And so if you wanted to read your Bible, aside from the Old Testament, what you would do is you would go to church and you would hear it preached. You would hear it read. So James here is probably not talking primarily about your personal devotional time, although there's application there too. I think he's talking about coming and sitting where you are now, sitting under the preaching of the word, hearing the word given to you. When you come, it is, it is very easy to come to church. Um, I think this is a particular temptation for us in the Reformed world, in the CREC world, in um, the, a world that wants to take worship seriously. It is easy to come here to rejoice in the liturgy that we have, to rejoice in the robust singing that we have, to rejoice in the fellowship time that we have, and then to go home and do nothing. To go home and nothing changes. It's easy to have, if we apply this to your personal devotional times, I think it's easy to have a Bible reading plan and, and be faithfully giving yourself to it, to maybe um, put together a list of books that you want to read and, and really get into understanding different aspects of Reformed theology or postmillennialism or masculinity and femininity, to really lean into those things. 
in your reading and then apply none of it. Over time, then, this is how we deceive ourselves, right? We give ourselves to these things. We hear these things. And over time, your worship or your book list or your different studies can become your temporary fix. It becomes sort of your feel-good piety by which you then justify or make up for the, unly, the ungodly things that you do in private. You can make yourself feel righteous by coming to a church, especially when you come to a church that takes worship seriously. We confess our sins together. Yeah, but does that change how you live in the middle of the week? Are you taking what you're hearing here, the, the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, the singing of the Psalms, and does it change how you live Monday through Saturday? It's easy to let this time, this place, become an excuse or a justification for ungodly ways of living. Or, in, in the, on the opposite side, to be an excuse for not doing the godly things that God calls you to do. I might not need to go and, and live that way on Monday through Saturday because at least I go to church every Sunday. And we have a really serious worship service. And we sing the Psalms. We confess our sins. And Pastor Hatcher and Pastor Hatcher Jr. preach forever. And, and we can think that, that that somehow makes up for the way that we live in private. This is, the, this is a real temptation. And a real temptation, I think, particularly for people in our, sort, in our world. This, this world of Christendom. This is just another example of what James identified as the double-minded man in verse 8. Remember, it, it, look, up, look back up at chapter 1, verse, verse 8. James is describing here that if we lack wisdom, wisdom to endure in the midst of trials, we're to call out to God and ask him for it because he's, he rejoices to give liberally to everyone that asks for this wisdom. But then verse 6, he says, Let him ask in faith no, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. The man who, who asks God for wisdom, but does so doubting God's goodness. Doubting God's authority. Doubting God's providence over all of it. He's a double-minded man, and he's unstable, not just in that prayer. James says he's unstable in all his ways. Well, here's another way in which this double-minded man is unstable. He's unstable because he hears the word and then does not do it. He's like the man who builds his house on the sand. He's unstable. He's double-minded. On the one hand, this person knows what the word says. Maybe he's studied very diligently. He knows his Bible very well. He knows theology well. He knows what it says, and, and maybe he can even express what it calls him to do, but he cannot put it in action because he doubts the full authority of God's word. He doubts what God has actually said. He knows that it's true and, author and authoritative in theory, but in practice, well, living this way is just too hard. It's just too hard to do what God's word actually says. 
In theory, I, I, I believe it's true that husbands should not, or fathers should not provoke their children to wrath, but in reality, I mean, have you seen the way that my kids speak? Have you seen the way that they act? I'm not talking about my kids particularly here. I'm speaking in, in hypothetical. It's just too hard. I know in theory, I, I know in theory that husbands are supposed to love their wives. But in practice, it's just too hard. I know in theory that wives, as wives, we're supposed to submit to our husbands. God, you don't know my husband. It's just too hard. Children are supposed to obey their parents in the Lord. You know that, children, you know that. You've memorized the Ten Commandments on your father and mother. You've memorized verses about obedience. But in reality... It's too hard. I just can't. I'll hear it on Sunday, but I'm not going to put it into practice. But this is double-mindedness. This is hearing the word and not doing it. And, and the reason that this is particularly significant, I think, in James, the, the way that James sets this up, is remember, he's talking about the fruit that comes from the implanted word. You've already been given this. You've already been given the ability to obey. You've already been given the ability to submit to the authorities that God has placed over you. You've already been given the ability to speak kindly to your neighbor, to love your neighbor as yourself. You've actually been given that. But then do you take it and make a profit on it? Do you take it and do it? Do you take it and apply it as God has called you to? Or are you double-minded? Hearing and not doing. James goes on though. He's describing this man who looks into the mirror, forgets himself, forgets what he looks like, forgets what the word has revealed about him and turns away and doesn't do it. But then he goes on and describes a man who does look into this mirror and then does this work. Right? Mirrors reveal to us what we cannot see of ourselves. We look into a mirror because I want to check what's going on with this. I want to see what I can't actually see. The blessed man, James says, is the one who hears the word, sees himself clearly in it. Sits under the preaching of the word and and hears the preacher and says, how did he know? Because most of the time I don't. Most of the time the preacher doesn't know all the specific applications in your life. But the Spirit does. And so in the preaching of the Word, when you hear it and you're convicted, you're looking into it, you see that really nasty green thing in between your teeth. Well, then if you continue in that, James says, and you go and do the work, that man is blessed. God's Word does more than just reflect reflect to us our shortcomings, though. And this is, again, this is how the, the, the word of God, the law of God, is grace to you. It doesn't just reflect to you where you have fallen short, but it also provides the path to grow in maturity. James calls this, the word of God in, in this instance, he calls it the perfect law of liberty. We've looked at this a number of times already, how the word perfect in Greek has, has the, the idea of the end game in mind, right? Uh, Maturation, purpose, where is it all going? That's what this word means in the Greek. 
So the perfect law of liberty is the law of liberty that is intended, has a purpose for maturation, to grow you up. That's what God's law is for you. This is continuing in that theme of the maturing work that God does. Remember, um, James says that patience, we're to let patience have its perfect work, its maturing work in us, so that God may bring us to a full and complete maturation in him in the midst of our various trials. Remember last week we talked about the good and perfect gifts that God gives. Good gifts that we easily recognize, but also good gifts that are maturing gifts. Gifts that God gives us to grow us up. The same idea here. He gives us the law of liberty. I loved how Jeff uh, talked about this during the call to worship. The, The law of God is given to you to liberate you from yourself. From your own sinful inclinations. It's freedom for you. You can either be a slave to yourself or you can be a slave to Christ. And by being a slave to Christ, there is true freedom. But this law of freedom that Christ lays out for us, that Jesus gives us in his word, is a maturing law. It grows us up. All of scripture, Paul tells us this in 2 Timothy 3, all of scripture is given to us to make the man of God complete and thoroughly equipped. Thoroughly equipped to do the good works that God has set before him. In the context there, Paul is speaking, when he says the man of God, he's writing to Timothy. He's speaking particularly about preachers, about pastors. All of scripture is given to the preacher so that he may be thoroughly equipped to do what God has set him to do. But we easily can extend that to everybody. Right? To each and every person here, each and every person here who's following after God, God's word is for you to make you full and perfect and complete and thoroughly equipped. It grows you up so that you can walk in the works that God has set before you. The man who looks into the mature law of liberty and does what it says is grown up as he is fashioned to be made more like Christ. It's fascinating in, um, in 2 Corinthians 3. Let's turn there just briefly. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, Paul uses some very similar language here to what James is using. He says, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. There's another example of a mirror here. When we look into, uh, into the mirror, one of the things that Paul tells us that we see is we see the glory of the Lord reflected back on us. Be- why? Because God is taking you, his creature, a sinner, but saved by grace, and he is transforming you to look more like Jesus to be more like Jesus, to act more like Jesus. He's transforming you into that image. And so when you look in the mirror, that begins to be reflected back at you. When when James is talking about looking into the mirror, again, it doesn't just show us the faults, it shows us the way forward. It shows us Christ. And so we look to Christ. We look to him the way that he lived, the way that he acted, the way that he applied God's word. And we follow that. When we are saved, 
God promises us that we will be conformed to the image of the Son. Okay? God says that he's going to, in, in Romans chapter 8, he says that those he predestined, he foreknew, whom he foreknew, he called, and whom he called, he justified. And, and all of those, he's transforming them into the image of Christ. That's part of being saved. But the means by which God does this, this is, this is the weird, this is really weird. The means by which God does this is by you obeying him. God is going to sovereignly save you. You've been predestined. If, you're, if, you're, if you are saved by grace, you've been predestined to be saved by grace before the foundations of the earth. And yet the means by which God is going to grow that sanctification in you is by your walking in obedience. You're going to do the work that God sets before you to do. Paul alludes to this also in Philippians 2. 12 and 13. What, there's one more passage I want us to look at. Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, then here's the command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. God has given it to you. Now you take it and go work it out. Kind of like the parable that, that Jesus says about the man who gives his servants uh, the money before he leaves and goes on a journey. And their duty was to take it and bring a return on it. Invest it. You're to take your salvation and you're to work it out. Make a profit on it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. You're going to go work it out, but it's actually God that's also working in you to will and to do, to desire and to act according to his good pleasure. It's by our own obedience to God's word in the circumstances that he places us that God brings about this transformation, this conformation into the image of Christ. James says that the man who lives in this active obedience, actively doing what the word says, is blessed in what he does. He does the work, he walks in obedience with his eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus, the one who went before and who lived that perfect life, and then who went to the cross, suffered and died, trusting in the words of the Father, went through that trial, not doubting, but trusting God. And then he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's gone all the way. He's done it all. And so we take God's word, what it reveals to us, right? We see it in the mirror. We see this is what God is calling me to do. This is how God is calling me to act. I need to hear it, and then I need to go and do it looking to Jesus, keeping our eyes on him as he has gone before us. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. What James is saying here is really just echoing what Jesus has, was calling his disciples to do in the gospels. Hear the word, hear the message of salvation, 
hear the commands of how to live before God, hear the commands to love God with everything that you have and everything that you are, and then go and do it. Put it into practice. Now, when we put it into practice, when we, when we live out our faith, it takes on uh, practical things, right? It, it takes on flesh. And even here, there are dangers for us. There's more possibility for deception. And so James gives us these uh, litmus tests for the man who thinks he is religious, for the man who thinks he's got this Christianity thing figured out. The one who thinks he is religious, James says, here's a couple of tests for you. The first test is whether the outward life, uh, of whether the outward life is religious and pleasing to God is if the man can bridle his tongue. Verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, this one's religion is useless. Interesting there that James says that he who does not bridle his tongue, and he pairs that then with deceiving himself. He who does not bridle his tongue, but deceives himself. His religion is useless. What does it mean to bridle your tongue? We talked about this a little bit last week when we looked at the three exhortation, three commands that James gives in verse 19, that we are to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Slow to speak, having a bridled tongue. Um, the, James talks about this quite a bit more in chapter 3. Mentioned this last time, but he has these analogies of the ship being like, or the, the, um, the tongue being like a bit that goes in a horse's mouth and steers the horse, or like um, uh, the rudder on a ship. It steers it wherever it goes, or like a little flame that ignites an entire forest fire. It's this very powerful, potent thing that God has given to us. And when we don't bridle it, James says that our religion, our outward profession, our, our religious acts, our worship, all of it is useless, worthless. What are the, the ways in which we need to bridle our tongue? Well, you know, some of the ones that come immediately to mind are the filthy talk that we naturally go to when we're not guarding our tongues. The, the filthy talk that stems out of our hearts and that is so easy to, to hear from the world and to quickly take in, be influenced by. James says if you talk that way and you don't bridle that tongue, you don't control that tongue, whatever else you're doing religiously is useless. Because you're kind of like the man who's looking in the mirror. God's word has plenty to say about the tongue and the way we are to use the tongue. And you're looking into the word and walking away and doing nothing about it. Um, gossip is another important piece of this. When we give ourselves to gossiping, to talking about one another or others behind their back, when we're given to that, and we're not bridling the tongue, we're not reining it in, our religion is worthless, useless. The other one that I think is, uh, again, alluding to something I said earlier, a potential problem, in, particularly in reformed circles, is um, 
being filled with lots of theological verbiage and knowledge, but not bridling it in the sense of bridling it, controlling it, and then applying it. If, if all we're filled with is lots of empty words, empty theology, well, then our religion is useless. Um, one other example of this is the um, people that, um, that tend to uh, that get convinced of something, one of, these, one of these powerful doctrines like Calvinism, and they get convinced of it, and then they go and they start beating everybody up with it. Or you suddenly become post-millennial, it makes sense to you, and you go and you start beating up all your amillennial friends because of it. Okay? This is, um, you know, we call it cage stage Calvinism. You need to lock this person up in a room for about two years before they settle down because they need to learn to bridle their tongue. This is a real temptation for us. When, we, when the word gets a hold of us in a new way, there's, there's nothing wrong with the excitement and the fervor and the, the zeal to believe these things and to go and share it with others, but there's a way of doing it which is unbridled. You're forgetting the grace that's actually been given to you so that you can see these things. And if we live that way, if we don't bridle our tongues with the gifts that God has given us, well then, the living out of those gifts, James says, is worthless. So bridle your tongues. He who thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue, he deceives himself. And self-deception is the worst deception. It's the hardest deception to break. The second test that James gives us is uh, the care for widows and orphans. Care for widows and orphans in their trouble. This refrain is called out many times in the Old Testament. There are particular laws given in Deuteronomy that, are, that Israel was to keep in order to protect, provide for, care for the, the needy and the helpless in that society. One of the things, this is sort of an aside, but one of the things that I think we should really grow in and learn from, and, and I don't have a solution to this, but there are laws in the Old Testament that talk about how when you have a field, you're not to harvest the corners and you're to not harvest everything that drops behind you so that the poor could come and gather it up. This is the whole, the whole story of Ruth centers on this law. Right? Boaz has this beautiful field. He's this rich, wealthy farmer. And all these people are harvesting his field. And then the poor, the widows, like Ruth, come and they glean behind the harvesters. God uses this story to, to preach the gospel in the Old Testament, right? About this woman who comes and finds a, a kinsman redeemer who delivers her out of her poverty. But it's all centered around this law that God has about providing for the widows and the orphans. I don't know how we apply that in our society. But I think learning to apply those things is part of this care for widows and orphans, Learning to apply it ourselves. How are you seeing the needs of those that are needy around you and giving to them, feeding them? And I know that's true for many in this congregation. There's a congregation full of people that love to serve. How can we do that more and more? How do we give to those around us that need? In Isaiah chapter 1, God tells Israel that, um, that he is no longer going to accept their sacrifices. He's no longer going to accept their worship. And the reason for that is because they've left behind the care for widows and orphans. 
the care for the needy and the fatherless. They've left that behind. And so he says, I'm, I'm done with your worship. I'm done with your sacrifices. They stink to me. We don't want to find ourselves in that, uh, under that description. How are we acting out what the word reveals to us to care for the needy around us? There's people here that a, a really uh, obvious application of this, I think, is um, the opportunities that we have to serve alongside of organizations like CareNet who are serving women who have been abandoned by the man that is duty-bound to provide for her and caring for that fatherless child as well. How can we come alongside these organizations? There, I know there are people among, you, among us here who work with them. Thank you for that. That's doing this work. How do we do that more? How do we do that better? We're living in a society where God willing, if God grants repentance, there's going to be many, 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 many more single mothers in our communities because they're all turning away from the world's pressure to abort their children. There's going to be many more fatherless children that are alive, and thank God for that. Are we ready to care for them? What are we doing to prepare for that? How are you getting ready in your own home to bring in the widow and the orphan? This, this applies to other things too, not just widows and orphans. It's the most obvious examples that I think James sets before us. But other examples are, again, we're praying for repentance and revival and reformation, and it's going to be messy. If God is kind and grants repentance to all of the people in our state who've mutilated their bodies, who've been taking hormone treatments to try to change the way that God made them, and God grants repentance, those are going to be incredibly needy people. Are we ready to bring them in, to care for them? How are we preparing for that? How are we doing that now in your circles? How are you looking to give to those people that need? This is what James calls pure and undefiled religion. This is that implanted word lived out. Why is that? Well, it's because the implanted word, when God grants salvation, what's he calling us to? He's calling us to follow Christ. Um, I, I skipped over this part, but it, it, um, there's an interesting thing to think about when it comes to the bridling the tongue. This is connected, don't worry. Can, uh, bridling the tongue. Why do we need to bridle the tongue? Well, the tongue is something that separates man from every, everything else, right? The ability to speak separates man from every other creature. Man was created to take dominion over the earth. That means the things that set him apart from creation, from the rest of creation, are kingly features, kingly features. And Revelation tells us that in, in the work that Christ is doing, he is making us, has made us kings and priests to God. You, the saints, the people of God. God is growing you up, maturing you to be, to live like kings and queens in his kingdom. Are you speaking like it? Are you speaking like the kings and queens in God's presence? And the same thing here. God is maturing us to imitate Christ, the king, in the way that he led his people. He led his people by serving them. He led his people by getting on his knees and washing the disciples' feet. And he says, if you would like to be great in my kingdom, do likewise to one another. This is why James is calling out, again, the most obvious example, the widows and orphans. Care for those people, serve. Give yourself to a life of service because that is pure and undefiled religion. 
Okay, finally, James gives the third test, and that is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is, again, the temptation to be double-minded. To be double-minded in a slightly different way. Each of these tests that James gives um, end up being significant sections in in the rest of the letter. He's sort of maybe giving a little bit of an outline here for the next the sections that are to come. He's going to talk about the tongue quite a lot in chapter 3. He's going to talk about this um, service to one another in chapter 2 and other places. And this last one, to remain unstained from the world, he gives particular focus to in chapter 4. Let me just read for you one section from this. Chapter 4, starting in verse 4. He's, there's an accusation that's going on here, so I'm not going to give too much context for the sake of time, but he calls them out as adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James says that pure and undefiled religion is to keep oneself unspotted from the world, unstained from the world. And we know that God has placed us in this world, that we are to minister in the world that God has placed us in. Jesus was not afraid to meet with and be with sinners, with harlots, with adulterers, with tax collectors. He was not afraid to mix with them, but he mixed with them in a sense that he was there to transform their lives. He was there to live out that implanted word that had been given to him. He was there to to change them so that they would no longer be spotted by the world. A regular temptation for us as Christians is to to give in to the desire to be like the world. And maybe even more so, to be liked by the world. To be admired by a world that hates Jesus. To be liked by a world that does not adhere to God's word. This is always a temptation for us. And it is, it is something that James makes very clear here. You can't be like the world. You can't be liked by the world in a worldly sense and call yourself faithful. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. We have all kinds of ways in which this, this very subtly happens. There's not enough time to go into this in detail. But consider these things. Consider the ways in which you imitate the world in the, the music that you give yourself to. That you let influence the way that you think about the world around you, about the people around you. Consider the, 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 ways, the other ways that we entertain ourselves. I'm not arguing that all of, you know, all pop music and all movies are bad, but the way in which that we just take it in and let it influence us and let it slowly deceive us and how we slowly allow ourselves to be deceived and we end up deceiving ourselves thinking it's okay because, hey, I go to church on Sunday. How do we imitate the world or do we, do we stand on God's word Do we stand on God's word and live out his word in such a way that that the world hates it? Paul talks about the gospel is the the stench of death to the unbelievers. 
Are we, do we stand on God's word, bridling our tongue? Do we stand on God's word and live it out in such a way that the world notices? And, they, and unless they're submitting to, unless God's using it to, to bring them to submission to Christ, they hate it. They stand against it. That's one of the easiest ways to be unstained by the world is to hold God's word tightly and be completely unashamed of everything that it says. Have no part of the Bible that you kind of wish we wouldn't go there. Wish that I just skip over those parts. I wish people wouldn't bring it up in conversation. That's being stained by the world. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. James has been arguing that there must be this outward life, this fruit that comes out, this joyful fruit that comes out, from the Christian, comes out in the Christian life. And in these three tests, James shows that you cannot be religious by being a good churchgoer or knowing a lot of theology and not have it reflected in your life and the rest of your week. You, there's really no such thing as a faithful Sunday Christian. If you find yourself living a life that is different on Sunday than the rest of the week, then take great heed to this passage. Are you hearing the word and doing it? And, there, and again, there's great joy in this obedience. James says, blessed is the one who hears the word, continues in it, and does the work, looking to Jesus. James writes to Christians that are tempted to give up. Remember in chapter 1, verses 3 and verse 12, we see this. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. They're being tested. They're being tested in that particular instance by persecution. You're being tested, though, all the time. You might not be persecuted for your faith. But you're constantly tested. Will you give in just a little bit here? Give in just a little bit here. Give up. Don't keep fighting. Verse 12, he says, on kind of the flip side of this, blessed is the man who endures temptation, who doesn't give up. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Do you hold fast, letting patience have its maturing work in you, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing? Do you hold fast in the midst of these temptations? James is writing to Christians like you who are tempted to give up. Tempted to give up, but God is not done with them, even in the midst of that suffering. God is not done with you in the midst of whether it's suffering and trials or the temptations of your flesh or the temptations of the world around you. God is not done with you. In fact, it is through your suffering through your resistance to those temptations, through the sanctifying work that God is doing in and through you, through your obedience in the midst of all of that, that God is growing you up for greater glory. That is what, that, that's what God is doing in your life. The temptations that he has placed in front of you, the situations that he has put you in, the circumstances that he has brought you to are tests. 
so that he can grow you up for greater glory. And so the question is, coming from this passage, what does the word show you? In some ways, this wasn't as practical of a sermon. It was a little bit more high level, not as many specific examples. But I think that's because you know what the word shows you. You know what the word has been, the words that have been preached to you and where you need to apply them. What does the word show you? Will you let the maturing law of liberty grow you up in the freedom that you can have in Christ? Or will you walk away this afternoon and forget what it showed you? Will you hear it and do it or will you walk away and forget it? Maturing, growing up in this law of liberty is frankly not an option for Christians. Maturing, the process of maturation is something that God calls each and every one of us to. And so in his grace, he will sanctify and preserve you. He will grow you up. Will you go and do it? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.